You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Welcome to week two. Today's teaching is on Exodus 15, verse 22 through 1636. Thanks for joining us. So good morning. I'm glad you made it. I was, I was praying my car would start this morning. Um, and today I am your wilderness survival guide. Does anybody feel like it was wilderness survival already just getting here? So, you know, you're ready to go. Um, So this is Exodus 15 and 16. And we're going to get it adjusted in a minute. Next week we'll have it all right. Just wait. Just come back. We're going to walk with the Israelites today. as (laughs) We will, right? As they learn to know God. And as they learn to live as a covenant community that displays his character and his glory to the nations around them. And we're paying close attention because that's our calling too. To know God and to live as a covenant community that declares his glory to the world. Now our community isn't like theirs. We're the body of Christ. But God's training methods are very similar because we have the same problems the Israelites did, right? Did you see yourself in this? Um, So he he does the same things. You want to keep your text open in front of you. We're not going to put it all on the screen. Um, If you looked at the map, I have a map, to figure out where these two chapters happened. There it is. Remember, we don't know exactly where they crossed the Red Sea. There's some different crossings marked in red. But after they crossed, that's the blue line. They headed south through Mara and Elim and into the desert of Sin. And the pillar of cloud and fire led them all the way. So we left the Israelites last spring in the middle of chapter 15, singing and dancing and celebrating because God had rescued them. And they traveled south for three days and didn't find water. When they finally came to a spring, it was bitter and they couldn't drink it. Now, don't confuse these people with Abraham and his family. Abraham's people were nomadic tent dwellers who followed their flocks and herds around the land. These Israelites lived in houses, in towns, and not long before they celebrated Passover by painting their doorposts, remember? Now they have no doorposts. They have no doors. This is not an an easy life for them. Um, I have a picture of the Sinai wilderness Yes, there it is. That's what it looks like. I like to camp, but I wouldn't want to camp there. Only one person among them has spent years living in this wilderness. Who is it? Moses. 40 years of herding flocks prepared him for this. So if you don't understand what God is doing with your life now, you just trust. He's got your future in mind. He knows it. So the Israelites are grumbling, understandably. Moses takes their request to God. God tells him how to perform a miraculous healing of water. He says, throw this log in. So Moses does, and the water turns sweet. God is taking care of them. He's just not giving them much advance notice. We always want to know in advance, don't we? You know, not at the last minute. That takes too much trust, but he's there. Verse 25 says that God tested them. I have a definition of test a procedure intended to establish the quality, performance, or reliability of something. And when we talk about testing, we usually think of academic testing, where we're proving to a teacher what we know or what we don't know. But God doesn't need us to show him anything. He knows our hearts better than we do. A better example, I think, is a medical test, like a blood test or an x-ray or an MRI. 
It's designed to reveal something inside us that's not obvious, but that we need to know and take action on, right? That's why God tests us. It's really easy to deceive ourselves about how deep our faith in God is until it gets tested. And then we realize that we knew all the right words, but maybe it wasn't really there. You ever been there? We say we trust God, but you lose a job or you have a medical crisis, and suddenly, does God really care for me? Um, I thought I knew that. You know, hidden cracks show up. God's loving testing shows to us, whoops, I'm not there yet. Thank you. Um, God's loving testing shows us and the world around us what God's like and what we're like. And we don't enjoy it, okay? But we appreciate the growth and the reward that it brings. So in verse 26, God gives instruction to his people. Yeah, there it is. If you'll diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer. Listen, do what's right, keep his decrees. They don't even know what the decrees will be, but God makes it clear he has expectations of them. He didn't lead, lead them out of Egypt so that they could do whatever they wanted. On the front of your workbook, the subtitle is Saved From and Saved For. Have you seen that? We like to focus on that first experience of salvation, coming to faith, saved from, and then act as if we're free now to do whatever we want. That's not that way. Our study last year, Exodus 1 to 15, was God's miraculous deliverance of the Israelites. That's a good picture of our salvation. This year's study, God shaping his people into a covenant community, is more like our sanctification. That's what we are saved for. God molds his redeemed people into a body that reflects Christ to the world. So that's what we're doing now. You were asked about, whoops, I want my slide back. You were asked to... (laughs) You were asked, too, about God's mention here of diseases and healing. What are the diseases that God promises he won't put on them? Well, in the immediate context, it's the diseases and judgments he put on the Egyptians, right? Because they didn't listen and they didn't obey. If the Israelites obey God, they'll escape that judgment. But then God expands that statement. He says, for I am the Lord your healer. It is part of God's character to heal his people. He is a healer. That's his nature. When Jesus came declaring that the kingdom of God was near, he healed the sick and the demonized. And they could, this is God's presence. But the Hebrew word here for healer, Rapha, is not just physical. It embraces our whole well-being, complete well-being, restoration, spiritual and physical. If you have come to faith in Christ... You have been promised complete physical healing in your resurrection body. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, not as soon as we'd like. Not just healed, but better than it ever was. And God has also begun our spiritual healing by canceling our sins and removing the barrier that stands between us and him. For the time being, our ongoing spiritual healing and our calling to testify to the world around us are more important than our immediate, complete physical healing and freedom from suffering. Did you get that? I'm going to say it again. That's probably the most important sense of the wilderness. For the time being, our ongoing spiritual healing and our calling to testify to the world around us are more important than our immediate, complete physical healing and freedom from suffering. So sometimes we see physical healing received and sometimes physical healing delayed. 
Sometimes God heals for his glory. Sometimes our faithfulness and perseverance in suffering glorify God. Johnny Erickson Totter broke her neck in a teenage diving accident. She was paralyzed. She's had a worldwide ministry because God delayed her healing. We see that now, but to a desperate, paralyzed teenager, the future was awful. As a newlywed, Laura Story struggled with her husband's brain cancer. Since then, her award-winning hit song, Blessings, has strengthened thousands of Christians. Why? Because it resonates with the truth that we're needing to grasp. Do you know that song? I love it. Laura sings to God, What if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? And all the while, you hear each spoken need, yet love us way too much to give us lesser things. Lesser things? The things we're asking for don't seem lesser, do they? Would you call them lesser things? But she learned that being pressed to know God more deeply is more precious than immediate relief. Stories of miracles and deliverance bring us joy and encourage us to trust God, right? But I suspect that what strengthens and builds us up most deeply are not stories of quick healing and relief, but stories of perseverance, endurance, of faith under trial, right? Those are the ones we talk about. And even though we know how powerfully God uses stories like that, we don't want to be in the center of them. We'd rather let someone else be the hero, right? I'll read the book, you know, and I'll grow up from reading the book, right? That, that's what we're like. So we need to realize that God's goal for us is not our immediate comfort. It's something better. It's better than comfort. Our purpose in this earth is to bring God glory and to become more Christ-like, not to perfect our circumstances. That will come. It is coming. And that, that inborn desire is not totally wrong. It's coming, but not yet. God loves to give good gifts to his children, and he promises to provide for us. But it doesn't always look the way we want right now. So is it wrong to ask God for healing? No, I don't think so. We're created to enjoy wholeness. And God often heals. He delights to heal. In 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul says he asked God three times to remove a thorn in his flesh that caused him suffering. But eventually he did see that God's answer of no was good for him. I have a quote from Lydia Brownback. Contentment is impossible until we accept that God doesn't direct our steps for the purpose of prospering our earthly circumstances. Everything God does in our lives has one overarching purpose, for us to glorify him and enjoy him forever. The goal is joy and glory. It doesn't always feel like that, does it? Wrapped in frail, decaying bodies, surrounded by a fallen world, it's hard to keep that eternal perspective. It's just, it just seems lost. And I'm hoping we can learn that better than the Israelites did. But look at this chapter, although God put them in a difficult situation to train them, he also took incredible care of them. Verse 27 says that he led them on to Elam, a beautiful oasis with 12 springs and 70 palm trees. In scripture, the numbers 12 and 70 often symbolize completeness and abundant, plenteous fullness. So God brought them to a place of rest and provision. In chapter 16, the Israelites come to the wilderness of sin on the 15th day of the second month, a month after they celebrated Passover in Egypt. One month of desert boot camp. And they complain to Moses and Aaron again. And this time in verse 3, they're really nasty. They're like, we rather God had killed us in Egypt where we had lots of meat. Like, what good would that do? 
rather that than to have you lead us into this wilderness to die of hunger. Now think, how were they led into the wilderness? Did Moses and Aaron do that? Now they followed a pillar of cloud and fire. So why are they complaining about human leaders dragging them into this? And Moses says, now you're really grumbling against God, not men. And in verse 10, the glory of God shows up in the cloud to make the point very, very clear. It is God in their midst doing this. So there's food for thought. Have you ever considered that a lot of our own grumbling and complaining about circumstances is really complaining against God who brought us here and allowed this? Just because he didn't lead me in with a pillar of cloud and fire doesn't mean that he hasn't put me where I am. So you can think on that. But in this case, God answers the Israelites very kindly that he will rain down bread and meat on them. Later on, he's going to expect a better attitude from them. They need to be learning. But right now, they don't know him very well, and he's leading them very gently. They haven't learned to trust him yet. And it's hard to be out there totally dependent on God for safety and provision. Have you ever been in a tough spot totally dependent on something or some person that you didn't trust? It's nerve-wracking, right? Public transport in Thailand was often like that. Either the driver or the vehicle or both looked totally untrustworthy. And it was such a relief to arrive, arrive safely at the journey's end. But the Israelites are learning. God is teaching them that he is trustworthy. In verses 6 and 12, you marked the words, you shall know. He wants them to know him, to know him deeply and to trust him and depend totally on him. He promises them meat tonight and bread in the morning. Not much is said about God sending quail when they ask for meat. He just dropped quail all over the camp that evening. But I think that was a special one-time gift out of the goodness of his heart because the people were missing meat. They really wanted meat. Manna would have been enough, and later it would be enough, right? And the focus is going to be on the manna. God's going to give manna one day at a time, every day a chance to grow in trust and obedience. Years later, in his farewell address to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 8, I have a slide, Moses explained what God had been doing. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Next slide. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This, did you see that word testing in the first slide? To reveal what was in their hearts. God wanted to test their obedience and to humble them, to remove their self-sufficiency so that they would depend totally on him. Bread was their daily food, the sustenance of life. But God said that the true sustenance of life was not eating physical food, which they bought or baked by their own efforts, but hanging on God's every word, clinging to him. That's where life comes from. Flip forward hundreds of years. When Satan tempted Jesus in the desert to turn stones into bread after 40 days, Jesus used this same verse from Deuteronomy to answer Satan. Man does not live by bread alone. That's why it's familiar to us. It's in the fourth chapter of both Matthew and Luke, if you want to read it later. Jesus answered Satan that he would not try to be self-sufficient, 
but he would continue in obedient, submissive dependence on his father, trusting God's care and his timing, not taking things into his own hands. He needed that trust in God more than he needed bread to eat, even after 40 days. But the Israelites in the wilderness are still in the early stages, right, of learning to obey and trust God. God gives them strict rules about how to gather the manna, an omer a day per person. That's about two quarts. No hoarding for tomorrow by gathering too much or leaving some overnight. Some people tried that anyway. Just in case God doesn't come through tomorrow, you know, I'd better have some extra. That prompting to try to take care of themselves instead of trusting God for the next day was just so strong, so human. Ever felt that? Let me hedge my bet in case God doesn't come through. Maybe I trust what I can do more than I trust what God can do. But God turned their hoarded manna into a stinking, wormy mess, and they had to trust him. And then one day a week, they were to gather double and rest the next day when no manna would fall. This time, the leftovers wouldn't spoil. God built a Sabbath practice into his new community. And you'll hear more about that later. For now, just notice he's starting this. God expected them to obey him in every detail, but he also wanted them to trust him in every detail. He gave them 40 years of practice gathering manna. He even told them to save some in a jar so later generations could see what he'd done. God wanted the Israelites to recognize their utter helplessness apart from him and to see the completeness of his provision for them and to turn to him in trusting faith. You were asked to look at John 6 where Jesus called himself the true bread of heaven. Jesus miraculously fed the crowds with bread and fish, a sign of God's care and kingdom provision for them, just like the manna had been in the wilderness. The next day, the Jews were demanding another sign like that from Jesus. They reminded him that God provided daily manna in the wilderness. Jesus told them to focus not on physical food, but on what was more important, what would provide them eternal life. He said that he was the true bread from heaven, God's ultimate provision for life. Manna provided only a temporary continuance of earthly life, but Jesus would provide eternal life. And that eternal life would be based on the same principle that God was teaching the Israelites in the desert, to recognize their utter helplessness to save themselves and to turn in faith to God, depending totally on his provision. So God has been continually teaching the Israelites to trust and obey him now that they've been called out to be his people. We'll say more about obedience later. That's coming. Um, But today I want to focus on trust and dependence on God. How do we learn to trust God? How do we learn to even recognize how much we need to trust him? That we can't take care of ourselves? We don't easily admit either our own helplessness or our tendency to self-reliance, do we? We talk about trusting God, but it's kind of all us down below. Well, bottom line is, for one thing, you don't trust what you don't know. We have to learn to see God and recognize what he's doing in our lives. So the most important way is study the word in community, okay? That's big. I wanted you to, I want that ingrained on your minds. You're going to hear us say that over and over and over again. The Bible is the ultimate revelation of who God is. It's his one authorized biography. So immerse yourself in it on your own and surround yourself with people who will help explain it to you, who will challenge your blind spots, who will grow with you. That's what we're doing here. 
When you clearly see God's infinite wisdom and his inexhaustible love and his sovereign power, you'll say, here, Lord, take my life and do more with it than I could ever have imagined. You might even someday come to trust him more than you trust yourself. That's what he's working in us. But then there's some practices you can implement in your daily life right now that reflect and reinforce what we've studied this week with the Israelites. So number one, remember your Red Sea deliverances. Did you ever have a mountaintop experience with God and you were sure you were changed for life and a few days later it evaporated, just like the Israelites after the Red Sea? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't stick, does it? <laughs> Throughout the Old Testament, God told his people to memorialize what he had done, put manna in a jar. So find a way that works for you. Journaling, creating a beautiful picture, a physical reminder, a photo, testifying to other people, celebrating an anniversary, whatever you need to make it stick. Our daughter had a heart problem as a child. Some of you prayed her through that. When she was in high school, a new procedure fixed her heart. And for years after that, on the anniversary of her healing, she bought candy for her friends and passed it out and told them what God had done for her until they went overseas. You can start simply. When was the last time you simply thanked God for your salvation or even celebrated it with a friend? As I was preparing this, I realized, I'm not, I was not going to cry. I realized that this coming May is the 50th anniversary of the day I came to faith in Christ. I, tr I try to think about it every year, but this year is, it's, it's 50. Okay, you're thinking to yourselves, wow, she was really young, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, <laughs> no, not really. Um, but I'm thinking about how I want to celebrate. That's my golden jubilee. It, it needs recognition. God has been so good. So remember your Red Sea deliverances. Find a way to keep reminding yourself of them. Don't lose them. Number two, practice gratitude for God's daily manna. All those little things we take for granted. You can make it a morning routine. You can keep a gratitude journal. You can look for beauty in the world around you. Whatever works for you. I bought my daughter a kitchen towel that says, start each day with a grateful heart. And I meant to send it to her, but it sat on the table, and I loved it so much, I thought, you know, I need this for myself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so I hung it. It's, it's mine. It's still mine. I need it. She'll just have to take care of herself. <laughs> but... But that, that helps. When I wake up feeling really discouraged, I start thanking God right there in bed for a comfortable bed. Look up for the roof over my head, a solid roof, for a hot shower waiting for me, for a choice of clothes in my closet, for a choice of breakfast foods in the kitchen. I go as far through the day as I need to start stirring up gratitude, however far it takes. We're comfortable, and we take these things for granted, don't we, until they don't work, and then we think about them. I'm thankful for a hot shower, because in Thailand, we had only cold water. And in cold season, I washed my hair in a cold shower with tears streaming down my face, because it was just so miserable. Um, so I can be really thankful now. And that's part of our problem. We don't have a good perspective. So if you need help gaining perspective here, get out and experience some other ways of life. Try volunteering in a less privileged community nearby. Or maybe head for the third world. 
But whatever it takes, we need to grow our gratitude for those familiar blessings of daily life. That's God's constant care for us, and we need to be aware of it and thankful for it. Number three, guard against the temptation to hoard manna. Self-reliance instead of trusting God. It was obvious when the Israelites did that, right? It's harder to see in our own lives. And it's not just material things, but choices we make. David and I have our own phrase for it. Remember that God promised Abraham a son and then took way too long in Abraham's eyes to take care of that. So Abraham decided to make it happen by himself. He slept with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. And Ishmael was born and the trouble started. So when David and I are tempted to move ahead without waiting on God or trusting him, we remind ourselves that we want, don't want to do a Hagar. That's our buzzword for being self-reliant, you know? We're not going to do a Hagar here. Um, so if, if that helps you, you can think of that. Or, or doing a Hagar or hoarding manna. Never mind God, I've got this. John Piper lists three main areas where we're tempted to be self-reliant. Wisdom, power, and wealth. So you can examine yourself. Do you think you can run your life better than God does? Or that you're smart enough or healthy enough to handle whatever happens? Ask God to reveal what makes you feel secure. It's a lifelong process to dig out all the little support beams that we sink into the sand of this world instead of planting them on the solid rock of God's care and provision for us. So if God's testing you right now by weakening some of those earthly support beams, or if he's letting your supply get wormy and stinky, just trust he's doing that to draw you closer to him, bring, him, bring you back. And number four, choose to let go of Egypt and focus on what God's doing now. Trust is a choice as well as a growth process. You can choose. We spend a lot of time and energy, just like the Israelites, wishing for something we no longer have even romanticizing, making it better than it ever was, right? Those things short-circuit what God wants to do now. Or maybe your Egypt isn't in the past. It's a dream or expectation that's not happening now that you keep thinking about. It's, a, it's just a place that we're not now, that we wish we were. And it takes a conscious choice to control our thoughts. I've struggled with both kinds of Egypts. My life doesn't look anything like I thought it would or like I wanted it to. But we can glorify and enjoy God only in the life we're actually living right now, not the life that we're living in our thoughts. And none of this is easy, okay? Wilderness training is, is not for the faint of heart. But I hope you don't end up feeling negative about it. This is true life. This is abundant life the life God desires for us, that close walk with God, the indwelling fellowship of the Holy Spirit, growth into the likeness of Christ. We were made for this. God knows we were made for this. And the reward is glorious. So the creator who formed us and loves us knows exactly what's good for us. We can head into our desert wilderness, whatever it is, with a joy and an expectation that the Israelites didn't have. We not only know more of the story, but we actually have something better than a cloud of pillar and fire, or a pillar of cloud and fire. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. So we can do this with confidence and with joy and good expectation. And I want to pray for us as we close. Father, you are, you are so good. You are loving. You care for us. It must grieve you deeply that we turn away from you and don't trust you 
and don't thank you and don't follow you. So I pray that you would soften our hearts. Help us to see that you are all wise and all loving and all powerful. Help us to trust you with our lives, not to second guess you, not to pull against it. But teach us to see you, Lord. If we could just see you more clearly and know you and and truly behave like your children in this world. So I pray that for us this week. As we continue to study your training, may we rejoice in that training and rejoice in what we see you doing in our lives. And I pray that you bring us back safely again next week. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who died to provide us with all these things. Amen. Amen.